there's just no way you can tell everybody that keto is the way to go or this particular variant of intermittent fasting is the way to go all of that stuff is individualizable it's customizable and there's enough literature to basically obliterate all of these universal prescriptions that are constantly dished out in the diet world welcome to the show where we help you make smart nutrition simple If you want proven nutrition strategies to help you build a better body and create the energy to show up for your family without overly restrictive and unrealistic dieting, then you're in the right place. Make sure to subscribe and enjoy this episode. How do we really lose weight in a sustainable and healthy way, both physically and psychologically? In a world of weight loss fervor, we find ourselves constantly bombarded with wild nutrition claims, haphazard and overly restrictive dieting protocols, and nutritional pseudoscience lurking around every social media corner, just waiting to grab our attention at the most desperate of times. Today, it's time to drown out the noise with an evidence-based approach to eating and exercise with my friend Alan Aragon, author of the new book, Flexible Dieting, a science-based, reality-tested method for achieving and maintaining your optimal physique, performance, and health. In this conversation, we discuss a number of dieting-centric topics, including what is flexible dieting and why does it matter? why you gain weight and what to do about it, the one universal diet that is right for everybody. Hint, you and I both know there is no one universal diet and the importance of lean muscle mass and the influence of obesity on metabolism and much, much more. Having spent years in academia, I have a strong appreciation for Alan's approach to nutrition and weight management. It's not sexy, It's not dogmatic, and he's not out making ridiculous claims as much of the industry is relegated to. But it is rooted in evidence, and it actually works. So, without further ado, let's jump in. I hope you enjoy this episode, and we'll catch you on the other side. Alan, welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. What's good, brother? Thank you so much for inviting me on, Ben. Really happy to be here. It's an absolute pleasure and honor having you on. I'm really excited for the opportunity to chat. And, you know, we were just talking and probably could chat all day about all of our experience in the field and the length of time that cumulatively we've been in the industry. And um, the purpose of having you on is talking about your book, Flexible Dieting, a science-based reality-tested method for achieving and maintaining your optimal physique, performance, and health. This is what seems to be somewhat of a Bible of, I should say, a science-based nutrition application book. I would love to know what was the impetus for you writing this book and, and sort of segue into what exactly flexible dieting is. The original book that this was kind of, uh, not necessarily modeled after, but was kind of the natural evolution from was a book I wrote in 2007. It was a self-published book called Girth Control. <laughs> uh, that's a hell of a title, I know. Nice title, yeah. Um, <laughs> but that book was, uh, the aim was to just discuss all the things I felt were important about nutrition uh, as it applies to fitness. So as it applies to improving body composition and athletic performance. And that was a self-published book. It was written 15 years ago. Well, almost 16 now. And so I really needed to update it 
but uh, just got so busy with with work and you know the march of of, of your career and and right. obligations that hit, uh, it just never got done. And in 2014, I did a book with a, a gentleman named Lou Schuler, who is a really good writer, a really yeah. good um, journalist, and it was titled for us by the publishing company Rodale. They said you guys are going to call this the Lean Muscle Diet. And Rodale is the men's health publication. Anyway, that was a good book. It was a good book. It was uh, a collab between Lou and I. We put it together in a kind of a short period of time. Um, and it's good. It's, it's, it's not great. Some people do think it's great. And there are elements of greatness in the book, but I would say it's good. Fair enough. I don't, I don't know if you give yourself enough credit, but now you have uh, perhaps redemption in your newest book. So talk to us about what flexible dieting is. <laughs> so about... Two and a half years ago, my friend Brett Contreras of um, Glute Fame, right. he gave me a call and, and said, Alan, I, I need you to do me a favor. I have a friend in the publishing industry, Glenn Cordoza. He's one of the upper execs at Victory Belt Publishing. Um, and Victory Belt published Becoming a Supple Leopard by uh, Starrett. They also published um, other big yeah. books like the Paleo Thingy by Rob Wolf, Rob Wolf yeah. and a bunch of big keto books as well. And he's like, Alan, they want you to write the book on flexible dieting. So we basically agreed that you're the guy to write this book. And I'm like, oh God, here we go with another book called, you know, with it, this kind of, mm-hmm. kind of sound bite, uh, you know, buzzword title, flexible dieting. And Brett insisted that it was titled flexible dieting. And um, I, I struggled with that a little bit because I would rather have named it something boring and direct or something really funny like birth control. But um, I feel like the title flexible dieting, it encompasses it well, but it also is misleading in the sense that people think it's a diet book when it's basically a, a readable textbook on evidence-based nutrition <laughs> for improving body composition and athletic performance and, and health, you know, to a degree, health is always going to be tied in there. So that's really the book. It's the book that you can build a nutrition certification off of. Basically it's like, it's that level um, of density and information and flow and comprehensive coverage of, of the elements and putting the elements together and understanding things from kind of a foundational standpoint, all the way to the application. So in a nutshell, that's what flexible dieting is. (laughs) To be fair, I like the name. And I think that from a marketing standpoint, you have to have some sex appeal when it comes to the, the naming of a book. So I'm gonna I'm gonna support Brett on this one. <laughs> okay. Um, but obviously the quality of the material speaks for itself. And um, like you said, it really does lend itself to kind of be somewhat of a textbook, as I alluded to, the Bible of of kind of evidence-based nutrition. And so I guess with respect to this flexible dieting approach, with respect to this individualization approach, which is a lot of what you touch on throughout the book, what is kind of the main tenets that you could talk about here that would help someone differentiate between, and and I'm just going to say dieting for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. uh, but between this dieting approach and and some other quote unquote dieting approach? I guess the big difference really is the concept that there's 
no single best magic bullet type of uh, dietary pattern or protocol yes. that's going to work for everybody. That's going to be effective for everybody. Uh, that's the thing about nutrition is it's, it's highly uh, individualizable. And, and mm -hmm. so like, just to give an example, there are a lot of books out there saying, this is the ketogenic diet, and this is the diet that's going to solve all your problems whether it's weight loss, whether it's this condition or that condition, keto is it, the ketogenic diet. So my, my book would basically be the antithesis of that message. So flexible dieting says there's a very wide range of macronutrient distributions that work equally well, as long as you can stick to it. But individuals vary in their goals and preferences and tolerances and capabilities to stick to a given dietary paradigm. So therefore you have to tailor it to the individual. So while some people, you know, according to the scientific literature, a minority <laughs> of people mm -hmm. can stick to keto, that's the diet that they should be on if they do prefer it. And it does click with their goals and, and their preferences. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, if somebody prefers a high carb, low fat diet, and that's what they can adhere to, well, then there you go. Right. That's, that's what's appropriate for that person. And so that's one of the aspects of individualization that you can apply to diet is the individualization of macronutrient breakdown, macronutrient composition that can be individualized. And so that right there is a complex avenue to go down because people have different body composition goals, whether it be gaining muscle or losing fat, right. and people have different athletic goals whether uh, the athletic goals are very casual, recreational, or whether they're competitive in either the strength or the endurance or, or the mixed sport, team sport realm. And that's when um, you really have to kind of individualize macronutrition, especially mm -hmm. the, the, the carbohydrate element of that stuff. So there's just no way you can tell everybody that keto is the way to go for everybody right. or this particular variant of intermittent fasting is the way to go for everybody. Right. And if you want to lose weight, oh, you got to shorten your feeding window to X hours and position the, the feeding window from X to X time in the day. Otherwise you're, you're messing up. All of that stuff is um, individualizable. It's customizable. And um, there's enough literature to basically obliterate all of these universal prescriptions that, that are constantly dished out in the diet world and all of these positions people have that, oh, this, this diet is the best diet. Very well said. The problem, Alan, is that if I don't get myopic and dogmatic about my nutrition approach, it makes it a lot harder for me to market my program and sell my supplements. hundred percent a joke, by the way, but I feel like that's really what potentially makes this flexible dieting approach so seemingly difficult to sell, right? To help people <laughs> yeah. buy yeah. into, yeah. because any answer to the question of what should I do is it depends on all of the, mm -hmm. the myriad of things that you just talked about. Mm -hmm. What are your goals and what's your current calorie intake and, you know, fat loss or muscle gain and, and, and all of these types of things and nutritional preferences and readiness yeah. for change. And 
It's certainly frustrating for me, and I talk about it a lot on the show, but I imagine it's certainly frustrating for you as well, coming from this science-based approach, but also anecdotally, having been in the industry and coaching individuals for, what, 25 years, it's probably equally, if not more frustrating for you. Yeah, it, it is. You, you, you just can't soundbite nutrition recommendations. You can't, you just can't universalize nutrition recommendations for everybody. And you're right. When you do have to ask, what are your personal preferences and what are your goals? It opens up a can of worms because then you can't make these bold claims that can go viral and, uh, you know, draw in the views and the, and the revenues. And yeah. And it's hard because we're led to believe that there is potentially a one size fits all approach mm-hmm. and that it can be simple or it can be easy and it doesn't have to take a tremendous amount of effort and it can be aggressive fat loss and all of these claims that you know are unsubstantiated and or are unsustainable and and what really kind of makes things complex ben is that I made the decision to cover a lot of ground in, in a very broad range of goals in my book. I, I, I made the decision to cover muscle gain, fat loss, and athletic performance in the book. So I technically you write three separate books mm-hmm. out of those things. It's definitely a compendium of, of, of solid information though. And I think it's applicable for everything from the general population to, to coaches. Um, and to those in the industry. And I have every intention of having a copy for all of my coaches for us to be able to reference, Uh, because you do a great job of just breaking things down into simple pieces of information that are really the most important piece of information for us to be able to implement. You're welcome. And and thank you for for putting it together, because I do think the industry needs something like this. With that said, you know, one of the things that you talk about early in the book is rigid dietary control versus Mm -hmm. this flexible dieting approach. Mm -hmm. And so what we've kind of been alluding to here is the, you know, promise of these easy, aggressive dieting plans that invariably do require some element of rigid dietary control. I'd love for you to touch on exactly what you've seen in the industry, what the research says about rigid dietary control, like what is that versus this individualization, this flexible dieting approach? Okay. So in the beginning, when you go back in the literature, flexible versus versus rigid dieting, that work really started in the nineties and flexible dieting is really comes down to a cognitive style of um, dietary restraint or, or control. So there's flexible dietary control and there's rigid dietary control. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, a series of, of studies that compared the two styles where rigid dietary control was a very dichotomous approach to how you view foods and how you view dieting. So it's very black and white, all or nothing, good foods, bad foods. And and the implications are, are, you know, angelic foods are evil, evil foods, just very all or all or nothing type of approach. And flexible dieting is more flexible (laughs) view of foods and dieting. So it it is not all or nothing. There's a margin for gray area. So mm-hmm. not everything is black and white with flexible dieting. Not everything is all or nothing. If you mess up on your diet, you didn't fail and you know, you're know you not permanently off the wagon. You can just get back on the wagon and, and keep going. And with flexible dieting, the concept of good foods, eat all the time, bad foods, avoid at all costs. That turns out to be a counterproductive 
mindset towards mm. towards food and towards dieting. And, and lo and behold, people who harbor dichotomous thinking about foods and about dieting have greater failure rates and lesser chances of, of properly controlling body weight. And they have higher probabilities and higher risks for disordered eating. And so this has been a consistent theme in the literature throughout the last two or three decades that um, basically has, has demonstrated over and over again that flexible dietary approaches, non-dichotomous thinking is a much more practical and sustainable approach to dieting. And mm. so uh, within the last decade or so, there is this erroneous conflation of flexible dieting with counting macronutrient grams. <laughs> so that's another sort of interesting sidebar where, yeah, counting macronutrient grams has elements of flexible dieting in the sense that there um, hasn't been this, this sort of rigid restriction of food selection, mm -hmm. right? So I that's see. the flexible side of it. But the rigid side of it is you've got these three targets to, to hit in the day and um, you're micromanaging your intake. And for some individuals that can, that can lead to pathological type of outcomes. Yeah. So it ends up being rigid dietary it control, ends up being psychologically rigid. speaking for a lot yes. of people. And yep. so you, where do you differentiate between this rigid dietary control, flexible dieting mm -hmm. and tracking calories? Like, listen, at the end of the day, regardless of what methodology we're using, flexible dieting, keto, whatever it is, intermittent fasting, it's like, we have to have some element of caloric control. Mm -hmm. right? Especially if we're working to lose weight, which the name dieting implies. And I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of people that are listening and reading your book are probably interested in some element of weight control, weight loss, body fat loss, body composition improvement. And so I don't think it's um, wrong to go down this road, but understanding, okay, well, within caloric control mm -hmm. is there's a number of methodologies, calorie tracking being one of them versus some of these other methodologies. So um, maybe you could speak to that a little bit. If we go back to the original principle of um, flexible versus rigid dietary control, then we can take the concept of flexible dieting to, um, I, I guess, the highest level and view flexible dieting as the flexibility of the dietary approach. Mm -hmm. To the degree that we can look at all of these different approaches whether they're highly granular and quantitative approaches all the way to the very loose and subjective and qualitative approaches, those are all under the umbrella of flexible dieting. So depending on the individual you are, depending on your psychographic, depending on your goals, depending yep. on your tendencies and proclivities, it's like you are fully welcome to be the human calculator and track everything. If that's what motivates you and if that's what nurtures positive outcomes in your life. And conversely, if you're somebody who is repelled by the idea of micromanaging everything and you would rather build certain habits and, and certain qualitative aspects that are conducive to your goals, then that's the route that you should take. And I'll even add a third thing in there. There are certain competitors where depending on the season, they need to clamp down and get highly quantitative and very micromanagey mm -hmm. and very rigid with, with their programs. Like for example, uh, pre-contest physique athletes. And then in the off season, it's a bit looser and a bit more qualitative and less granular and, and micromanagey. So really flexible dieting is flexibility of, of the approach.
you make a really good point in that because it seems that people want kind of an all or nothing approach and say, well, I shouldn't have to track calories and I should still be able to lose weight and eat what I want and have this degree of quote unquote flexibility and freedom to do what I want versus no, 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 you have to right be extremely rigid and like, where are you now? What's your progress look like? How aggressive are are your goals? Mm -hmm. Because I think we have these unrealistic expectations around what is reasonable, what is unreasonable relative to what you're willing to commit to. But wouldn't it be more reasonable to apply a tool that is going to help you get there faster and have more control, perhaps even within that flexibility over the process? That goes back to the diversity of goals that people have. People with more general and and casual goals, some of them are, are going to love plugging macronutrient grams into an app, but Really, most of those folks don't don't have to. As long as you recognize the principle that, like, if somebody, for example, has thirty pounds to lose, if they recognize the principle that if my goal is thirty pounds lighter, I need to be consuming the maintenance amount of of calories of that thirty pound lighter person, and of course, factoring in what my activity level is going to be, and so therefore, the big picture objective is to eat less than I'm eating right. currently to maintain my my 30 right. pounds heavier self than I, where I need to be. And as long as they have that in mind, and as long as they know that there are many ways to achieve eating less, there are quantitative ways where you plug in every gram into an app. And there are a bit more subjective and qualitative and default ways where you can just pull some, mm-hmm. some simple tactics like drinking more water to displace uh, stomach space that you would have filled with energy dense foods. Mm-hmm. eating more protein to increase the uh, satiety and, and hunger control of the diet that will default you to eating less of the other stuff that may be more energy dense and or not conducive to um, weight loss or fat loss. And of course, you know, there, there are other approaches as well that are a bit more extreme where you're avoiding entire food groups, Right. but it is important to know in the back of your mind that the objective is to eat less for people who need to lose weight. If you know that in the back of your mind, and you know that all these tactics that you employ are, all they're going to do is enable you and, and corner you into eating less, then you need to find the road to eating less that is most sustainable and doable for, mm-hmm. for you as an individual. Like tracking, counting calories, a lot of people hate the idea. And a lot of people even more hate the idea of counting macronutrient grams. And so there's ways around that, that are not as granular and quantitative, but still work really well because there's no way we can track our energy input and output down to the calorie every day, no matter how many devices we get or we wear, and no matter how closely we think we're tracking everything, it's it's just unachievable to track everything. And so I like to put people on uh, the experiment, like when they start getting stressed out about tracking, I like to challenge them to not track for a whole month and just kind of go, go by feel and eat according to hunger and satiety cues. And and let's see what happens for a month. Lo and behold, the body is so amazing at just staying the same that they just Mm -hmm. (laughs) stay the damn same for the month. So there you go. You're you're, nothing's going to fall apart if you stop tracking right now over time, depending on um, life circumstances and what sort of trend you're creating, uh, you know, and, and then then certain certain changes can happen over the long term, good or bad. But some people have the, this idea in their mind that they need to slave over the quantifying aspect 
uh, sure. of dieting. And, and really the body has its own um, checks and balances and auto-regulatory pathways that really sort of uh, dovetail into us staying the same. Yeah, it really is quite fascinating um, how that works, regardless of whether you're tracking or not, mm-hmm. whether you're training the type of training that you're doing in terms of that auto-regulation. It really is quite fascinating when you when you really start to work with people and you start to see all of these nuances of how they respond. With that said, and despite the fact that you know you've got this this book with all of the scientific references, I think we can agree that, and, and what I'm hearing you say is that at the end of the day, certainly it's it's much more behaviorally driven. Um, it's much more psychologically driven around helping someone establish more awareness around what it is that they're doing consistently in whatever way resonates with them. And I think there's room within this, this quote unquote flexible approach. I do think, and, and think it's warranted to weave in all of the experiences that people have often had with these regimented dietary routines to say, if you did keto for a period of time, we fully understand and hopefully we can acknowledge that perhaps it didn't work for you or maybe elements of it worked for you for a period of time that you enjoyed and what did you not enjoy about it and what can we kind of take from it and apply at the end of the day what becomes most important is that we're creating awareness around how we're controlling for calories and how we are creating some level of accountability through this process and you know one of the things that i appreciate is sort of this tracking approach that you mentioned in the book it could simply be setting a calorie ceiling and this is one of the things that we firmly practice within our our coaching methodology is there's all of these nuances of tracking it could just be tracking for the sake of tracking with zero acknowledgement or preconceived notions around what you should be or shouldn't be doing yes. right there's a lot of value to that in fact we often mm-hmm. see just by virtue of doing that, people, they realize what they're doing. There's accountability built in and they mm-hmm. start to make better decisions. We can yeah. have a calorie ceiling and a protein minimum. We could just have a protein minimum. Personally, I believe that everyone should have the opportunity, assuming body composition, you know, weight loss is a goal, fat loss is the goal. I believe it is, can, can be a very, very valuable tool. Mm-hmm. With that said, we, we fully acknowledge it's not for everyone, but within that, obviously there's a lot of room for individualization, I should say. Yes, yes, yes. Even within the bubble of tracking, like you mentioned, there are different ways that you can track. There are are, are different degrees of comprehensiveness in the tracking process. And people click with different points on that spectrum. Like you mentioned, just tracking protein and total calories, for example, is in my observations, a very effective um, method that kind of falls right in the middle of either just, you know, very loose qualitative stuff and then just tracking every gram of all the macronutrients and stuff. It's sort of in the middle and um, it, it allows flexibility for people to kind of get the, the non-negotiables done, calories yeah. and protein, and then the, the flexible negotiables, which, which really are carbohydrate and fat, depending on personal preference and goals and stuff that can be flexible from, you know, week to week, day to day. And so that that's one way to do it. And, and even just having an awareness and, and you can wean kind of off of tracking for those who have a desire to get 
off of the tracking train, there's ways to do that. And um, one of the stepwise approaches would be to go from tracking all the macronutrients to just tracking protein and calories to just having an awareness of protein to sure. then just kind of having an awareness of um, what sort of ranges of servings of food groups that you should achieve in the course of the day to make sure that your diet has a good balance of um, the spectrum of foods and in amounts that happen to click with your uh, maintenance goals, for example. And so, um, yeah, there, there's many different ways to track and there's many different degrees of um, comprehensiveness of tracking that different people will, will click with. I tend to take it for granted that folks like you and I, through our schooling, we were pretty much forced to learn all of the macronutrient values of all the foods and in all the portion sizes imaginable. Right. So we already have that awareness in our brains and therefore we don't necessarily need to track because we already have that skill built in and we can eyeball a whole lot better than somebody who wasn't sort of raised with that and, and trained in that. And so I, I, I do agree with you that a certain time period of tracking just to build awareness of the right. nutrient and, and calorie values of the foods that, that you tend to eat and in the portions you tend to eat them, a, a period where you are tracking everything, it never hurts. And it can always help to build an actual awareness of, of what you're taking in and wh whether you decide to gradually wean off yeah. from that, or whether you just decide to track every gram for the, until you're 80 years old, and then you retire, that can be up to the individual. You hit the nail on the head though, when you said it's skill development. I mean, it is, it's skill development. And so that's where I just see the need. It's like budgeting, just managing your bank account, right? It's like mm -hmm. you have to yeah. like be in there just paying attention. Mm -hmm. And the nature of our food industry and what we're exposed to every day is such that if we don't have any idea of how these calories are adding up, we're in big, big trouble mm -hmm. because everything in front of us is geared towards being calorically dense um, promoting endless consumption and invariably contributing to way more calories than any of us need. And so it's almost like we have to be terribly proactive, which people probably don't want to hear. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The, the environment for sure is obesogenic in both the intake side and, and, and the output side of, yeah. of energy expenditure. There's a lot well, of uh, dovetailing and, and defaulting towards just eating more and, and moving less, you know, I am. Mean, that's a, a nice segue into movement. Um, and what I would love to talk to you about is the importance of strength training, but more specifically the age related changes in body composition. Yeah. And so let's touch on the relevance of strength training and let's touch on the nutritional implications of maintaining lean muscle tissue as we age. Our muscle tissue, interesting, uh, I believe it's Gabrielle Lyon who calls it our, our body armor, which is kind yeah. of a cool, cool way to look at it. Um, it's, it's really kind of the furnace of, of metabolic fuels is our muscle mass. And, and so um, just from a, from a metabolic standpoint, our muscle tissue is crucial to not progressively lose because then we lose our capacity to properly process protein, carbohydrate, fat, calories, we lose our capacity to use those fuels as opposed to allowing, um, 
the accumulation of the, the byproducts of those fuels to, you know, result in um, ever growing uh, visceral fat mass, ectopic fat mass, and then the chronic diseases that follow that. And so muscle is, is really an underrated component of, of healthy aging. And, and this is because the, the focus traditionally has been on cardiorespiratory fitness um, equated to cardiovascular health, which has been right. equated to longevity. Right. And so um, the newer model would be musculoskeletal health or optimization being sort of the driver and the puppeteer of the capacity to maintain cardiorespiratory health. And then you can affect overall um, cardiometabolic health positively if you have all those components in place with arguably the foundation of it being healthy muscle in terms of amount and, and function. Yeah. So we need lean muscle tissue. As we age, we need lean muscle tissue to support healthy fat loss. Mm -hmm. And we need lean muscle tissue as a driver of really quality of life as well. And we, and you know, we were talking about Dr. Mark Peterson, one of my colleagues from, from grad school and his research on strength associations to longevity. And we know very clearly that the two are, are very highly correlated around the stronger you are, right? The longer you will live. Mm -hmm. um, which really shines the light on the need for us supporting lean muscle tissue as we age. And so what are like the main mechanisms to be able to do that through activity and through nutrition? The essence of the phenomenon of, of sarcopenia or age-related um, muscle loss and dynapenia, age-related strength loss, the, the, the crux of that is muscular disuse or essentially either uh, purposeful immobility or forced immobility. Immobility is really the crux of the, of the problem. So a lack of movement, a lack of resistant joint movement is going to result in a, a gradual and sometimes progressive loss of muscle tissue. And when you lose muscle tissue, you lose the ability to properly metabolize dietary fuels. Mm. And then, um, then the, the constellation of problems start from there. And so with, with even just simple things, insidious things over time, as, as people age, they'll move less. Yes, of course, but they, they'll walk 10, 10, 20% slower. They will take breaks and sit 10, 20, 30% more, um, across the normal span of activities of daily living. And this isn't even, um, you know, getting into a decrease in visits to the gym right. and just um, a, a waning interest in the whole fitness and aesthetics thing that you may have had back in your 20s and 30s. There is a, um, a progressive decrease in physical activity that just creeps up on people. And then you see sarcopenia kick in. And it's worth mentioning that the accumulation of body fat exacerbates the whole thing because when you accumulate excess body fat, you're creating a low grade inflammatory state, a systemic inflammatory state that actually hinders the body's ability to elicit muscle protein synthesis in either response to training or in response to food or both. So it actually does make it tougher, especially a state of obesity. It impairs the body's ability to have an anabolic response at, at the muscle level. So inflammatory factors in the body within adipose tissue and secreted by adipose tissue can actually compete with um, anabolic factors in muscle tissue. And so 
the sustenance of this sort of state, accumulating excess body fat and the compromise or decrease of muscle mass, it results in a condition called sarcopenic obesity, where you have diminished muscle mass alongside of an excess of body fat. And this is something that is sort of a multifold problem in the aging population. So they're mm-hmm. burning the candle on both ends in the wrong right. way. So the third component to that, which is sometimes added to, to those factors going on at the same time, is just poor nutrition, all the way from incomplete essential macronutrition to incomplete essential micronutrition. And the focus of poor nutrition as we age through just having a crappy diet and a crappy lifestyle, but people's tendency to sub-optimize their protein intake. So the typical pattern with um, aging and older adults is barely any protein at breakfast. Right. Uh, It's kind of a meager marginal amount of protein at lunch. And then you get a, finally, you get a substantial hit of protein at dinner. That's not good enough because then total daily protein intake doesn't equal the amount that would support muscle mass over time. And then the lack of resistance training. And then of course, the inflammatory state spurred by excess body fat, all of this stuff converges into just really bad things, chronic disease wise and sarcopenia wise as we get older. It's just one big disaster that people don't see coming. And there are simple, but not easy, not necessarily easy, but there's simple strategies to prevent that and age well, instead of age badly. Well put. And so what we're seeing is this just vicious cycle of metabolic derangement that occurs by virtue of moving less, eating less of the right things, right? Stimulating muscle mass less. And so you get this accumulation. So what we often see, right, is is weight might stay the same or weight might increase, but we know that lean muscle mass is a deteriorating mm-hmm. kind of year by year of disuse. So yeah. we're actually getting an accumulation of fat mass, as you said, is sort of has this metabolic stimulus to it, not in a positive way, mm-hmm. right? Um, that creates this low grade systemic inflammation. And that just perpetuates this whole vicious cycle, Yeah, coupled with the lack of protein intake and probably overconsumption of more processed carbs and fats and mm-hmm. probably alcohol to some degree. And it's just like, you know, on and on. And we, then we see quality of life reduces and a lot of the situations that, that we're finding ourselves in. So you said there's a few seemingly simple ways Mm -hmm. to be able to offset this. Do tell. Yeah. 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 It helps to understand, uh, at the population level, the typical general population adult, the way that they accumulate body fat is not from a couple extra teaspoons or tablespoons of food on a daily basis. It happens in these sort of concentrated chunks from about November ish to January. So the typical adult will gain about one to two pounds a year during the holidays, and they will sustain this one to two pound annual weight gain for about 10 to 20 years. Yeah. And this is the insidious up creep of body fat that happens by the time people hit 40, 50 in that range. And they wonder how on earth did that happen? Well, it didn't 
it didn't happen every day. It, it happened because you didn't necessarily beat the holiday season mm-hmm. an- annually. And so once you recognize that, then you can realize, well, okay, I just need some more awareness about what's going on during the challenging parts of the year and the seasons that may present these disease vectors <laughs> that could eventually get me um, in my older age. And so that, that's one way to, to, to beat the upcreep of body fat is to kind of recognize when it happens and, and, and how it happens. Cause people can be totally Spartan for the whole year. But once that, once that margin of the holidays hit, then they kind of cast everything off and then they're, you know, literally one to two pounds heavier and on I'll start heavy. again after the new year. Yes, exactly. Oh gosh, I've gained this weight. You know, it's January 1st. I've got my resolutions ready. Let's let's do do this. But then you are still behind the eight ball annually. That's one thing to be aware of. The the other thing to be aware of is uh, especially people with kids. So um, middle-aged parents with kids are are the most challenging population to affect change and, and good habits and stuff because they're multitasking to a very high degree. And the things that they're multitasking tend to antagonize the, their goals from the kids food lying around to just rushing around to pick them up and take care of them. And then when you add to this, the stresses of full-time work in the corporate world on top of the kids, um, right. you know, you have the stresses of finances and the stresses of trying to balance life. There's the different things that you're juggling. It leads to decreases in, in physical activity. It, it leads to decreases in gym time. It leads to an increase in self-medicating with um, like alcohol. Right. And it, it leads to excesses in, in this direction. It leads to people mindlessly eating in front of Netflix in order to de-stress. Totally. Um, it leads to people using food as medication and or entertainment and or a means to stave off boredom even. <laughs> so um, yeah, people using foods um, in, the, yeah. in the wrong way. And that coupled with the decrease in physical activity, um, people need to just kind of take a step back and see how can I get physical activity in order? How can I get uh, overeating reined in? How can I be more mindful with eating? Yeah, And how can I be aware of body composition and how I can get that in the right direction. And how can I do all of this stuff and still maintain good quality of life? And it's a tall order. And this is what, this is the value of coaches like yourself to provide a third party to help people manage this stuff. There are some people who are self-directed. They can get my book and they can get whatever you've written uh, on, on this topic and they can succeed. But people really and truly have to consider the value of having a, a, a real life coach. You know, you make them accountable for helping you as long as you're accountable for learning and sticking to the programming. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tall order. It's very difficult. It can absolutely feel like that and justifiably so. But, you know, at the end of the day is prioritizing or at least figuring out what you're willing to prioritize and why it's important for you so that you can create a level of awareness that allows you to accomplish, if nothing else, maintenance through the holidays, if nothing else, progressively and systematically increasing your physical activity levels, learning how to implement resistance training exercises, or having some level of a progressive plan that you can utilize that fits within 
your equipment availability, with your, you know, training frequency, even if it's just some dumbbells at home to start off with, which we often do, or even if it's just a TRX strap, you know, whatever it is, it's something, but like you said, having the accountability perhaps is one of the most important factors to just get you to show up for yourself, even if it's in- extrinsically motivated at first, right? Because no one wants to get up at 5 a.m., especially with you know the kids and the work and all of the sports responsibilities and all of that stuff. I get it. You get it. But at the end of the day is you have to start to instill these behaviors that you can stack one upon the next to the point where it does become intrinsic. It does become something, you know what? I feel better when I do this. I make better decisions, right? I can clearly see progress. I'm getting comments from friends. And so I appreciate how you tackled that question. And what I'd like to do, because I I absolutely want to respect your time. My last question here is I'm, I'm curious for you having been um, in this industry for the time that you have, having been rooted in the scientific evidence as well as practicing yourself and with clients, what's the biggest perhaps nutritional practice that you've changed your mind on over the course of the past 10 to 15 years? Yeah. One of them is very niche and sports nutrition and it was the idea of the post-exercise anabolic window of opportunity. Totally. So there was a time back in the early 2000s where everybody who trained with, with weights was taught that if you didn't have a quickly digested protein, like wave, for example, along with a highly glycemic, highly insulinemic carbohydrate, like dextrose or maltodextrin or something along those lines, if you didn't have it immediately post-exercise, then you're basically um, killing your gains <laughs> as, as, the, as the meme goes. And I've changed my mind about that over time. And, and my colleagues and I, we've done both primary research. So intervention type um, research on that, as well as secondary research, meta-analyzing the studies of other, other researchers looking at this post-exercise anabolic window question. And it really just pretty much boils down to first and foremost, getting enough protein by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And the particular positioning of the protein doses relative to the training bout, I want to say it doesn't matter as long as you hit your total by the end of the day. But then when people say, when people hear me say it doesn't matter, then they automatically think, oh, so I can just eat all 150 grams of protein in one meal on the opposite uh, end of the day from the workout and I'll optimize my results. Right. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you don't have to nitpick at how close or far from the training bout that you consume your, your protein in the context of the typical multi-meal a day model, which is what the vast majority of people in the world are eating three times a day or more. They're having three yeah. protein servings or more. And if you're doing that, and your protein intake by the end of the day is at the sort of golden target that, that we strive for, which is roughly, roughly double the RDA. So about 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight or 0.7 grams of protein per pound of body weight. If you're hitting that, then the shuffling around the timing relative to the training bout, we just haven't 
observed it to, to have any impact at all. And, and that would include the co-ingestion of carbohydrate and protein post-exercise to maximize recovery and, and growth and stuff like that. But lo and behold, the, the march of research showed that the positioning of carbohydrate, the co-ingestion of carbohydrate at that point is really only applicable and beneficial for people trying to expedite glycogen resynthesis. Yeah. And there is a subset of, of, of um, athletes for whom that is very important. But for dieters and people just trying to gain some muscle recreationally, um, I mean, goodness, have your carbs when you want to, when when it works best for you and um, hit your protein intake by the end of the day. And and then seriously, like (laughs) you'll be fine if it, especially if you're in the fed state for most of the day, there's rarely going to be fueling issues and, and training performance issues unless you're running really high volume or in competitive endurance oriented type of protocol. So that's one of the things um, that I've changed my mind on. The other thing that I've changed my mind on is the idea that you you have to stoke the metabolic furnace with frequent small meals. So you got to stoke your metabolism because if you have just a low frequency of these huge meals, then you'll stamp out the metabolic fire. So it's, we were taught that it's the difference between throwing Kindle on the fire in little bits versus throwing a big fat log on the fire. You stamp right. out the metabolic fire. Yeah, that's that's something that I have not um, bought for a long time with with highly controlled trials comparing meals in the day that added up to the teens. And when you compare it to an equal amount calorie wise with like one, two, three meals a day and just really no difference in, in 24 hour energy expenditure, um, right. then number one, you have to kind of eat your words after you told everybody they have to eat a minimum of four, four meals a day. And then number two, you kind of realize, oh, well, this is great because now I can accommodate the people who, who prefer to eat two to three times a day. They can still reach their body composition goals as well as the folks who, you know, prefer to eat like four to six times a day. And, and so there was definitely an evolution of learning in, in that aspect totally. as well. And Maybe, maybe the, um, a more recent change that, that I've had is just the view of, um, completely abstaining from certain foods versus forcing their inclusion to kind of get over your phobia or your issues with them. Um, if people want to avoid certain foods, I just say, okay, cool. If you can sustain that and, and, and you feel that, um, you can make progress and maintain progress with certain views of certain foods you feel like you need to abstain from, even though you like them, then great. Yeah. Just do that. Uh, I've, I've kind of lightened up my, my attitude mm. on that because in principle, if you view certain foods as forbidden and taboo, then um, there's going to be people who will binge on those foods. Definitely. And so the default programming tactic was to just include those foods in the diet to kind of decondition people from thinking they're taboo, but I've lightened up on, on that stance and figured that, you know, maybe some people truly can't psychologically get over certain foods. They truly can't psychologically control their overeating of certain foods. And as long as they don't feel like their quality of life is diminished by avoiding them. Okay. Fine. Avoid them. Maybe that, maybe that's best for you. Yeah, man, that's super interesting. I, and I appreciate you brought that up because I, I definitely encounter that quite a lot. And I'm, I'm probably of the, you know, the thought process or the implementation of, of the uh, former in terms of saying, well, 
if you feel like this is something that you can't or shouldn't have, it's taboo, it's quote unquote bad. Well, we should probably implement it. So psychologically speaking, you realize that you can still make progress while having these foods, but definitely to the point of certain people, certain foods, like legitimately you have one, you have 10 and it's just, there's no cutoff. I think that's fair and definitely gives me something to think about. So I I appreciate you sharing that. (laughs) Um, And then on the other two points, awesome. Uh, Yeah, definitely something I've changed my tune on and I'm, I'm just as guilty of the the six meals a day to stoke the fire. And it's certainly a relief to know that people can get away, especially busy moms, so to speak, of three meals a day. Can I just include a comment about the whole changing your mind on stuff? Please. Something that I'm trying to maintain an open mind about is the research on time-restricted feeding um, and its, uh, its, its benefits on, on various parameters. However, I still am not convinced. I just highly disagree with people who claim it's the superior way to go, because I still think that that model, its its main benefit is its ability for people to allow some people to control total intake over the course of the day. So separating time-restricted feedings, inherent or special benefits from its ability to enable weight loss maintenance or weight loss is very hard to do. I'm trying to keep an open mind, but I, I, just from a programming perspective and an individualization perspective, I just have to put it out there that anybody who says we need to stop eating at 5 p.m. or 4 p.m. in order to optimize health and in order to optimize you know cardiometabolic parameters or in order to optimize in quotes longevity, that's incorrect and um, that's one of the things that is really trying to get pushed out there now that I don't see the compelling evidence for, especially with, with certain populations who need to take advantage of feeding opportunities throughout Definitely. the day. And what I'm hearing is the benefits relative to just creating a caloric deficit. It's like, yeah, you, you stop eating at five, four or 5 PM. Like invariably you probably won't eat half the calories you would yeah. normally eat for the general population. And so sure as compared to any other diet, like the, the results might be just as effective because you're creating a calorie deficit. But what you're referring to specifically is the promoted health benefits beyond just the calorie deficit. So for the general population, there's so much information, Alan, mm-hmm. and it's so much seemingly sound like information, right? When we're listening to people talk about early time restricted feeding and intermittent fasting and keto and carnivore and plant-based and all of these different eating methodologies and there's documentaries and they all to us sound valid. They use big words and Mm -hmm. scientific concepts and they are, are touted as having scientific support. What's your uh, recommendation to our listeners that are confused and frustrated by the nature of the conflicting evidence that they're constantly receiving as to what to do? That is such a good question because it's, it's so difficult. Maybe I, I think maybe the, the first step would be to foster a high degree of skepticism of any nutritional information that's outside of um, the peer-reviewed literature. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of come to, it's kind of come down to that. Now that makes it very tough for 
the lay population because they can't just pop into PubMed and start reading exactly. stuff and, comp- and comprehending it. But just as a general principle, diet and nutrition documentaries, a small fraction of it is, is evidence-based, is truthful, is reliable, valid. But usually at least half is just absolute nonsense. Um, everything from uh, game changers type stuff to magic pill or, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the documentaries that push one side or the other. Right. It's all a bunch of hogwash and, and the, and truly this applies to most of the diet books on the shelves. If there's a diet book out there that claims to have the magic bullet and the secret, it's just the speculations of the author. It's just the imagination and speculations of, of the author. Extreme types of plans and bold claims are, are rarely valid, rarely valid, man. We have an evidence base. We have a large evidence base to have a grip on what is valid, getting the lay person to understand that and grasp that and know those things is extremely difficult. The best we can do is just make sure the evidence-based practitioners get this information out there somehow. And, and so I'm trying to do my part by writing a book that is on evidence-based nutrition. And now, I'm not some superstar who shows up on Dr. Oz every week and can talk about my book. <laughs> so therefore, there's only going to be this small population of people who actually get their hands on my book and read it. So I don't know, man, you, you may have pre- presented the billion dollar question of how do we, how do we reach the, the lay audience? How do we teach them the right stuff? Well, that's part of the reason why I felt like it was necessary to get you on the podcast, to share your information, to try and you know, get the book in as many hands as possible is because this is the type of information that people need to hear. It's like you said, anytime that we're presented with information that seems polarizing, especially with respect to nutrition and exercise, we do need to to be immediately skeptical of the validity of that type of information. And it's not only just the validity, but also let's take a step back for a second and acknowledge if and how this would even work within the context of your life, what you're willing to prioritize, how you're willing to commit to it, what you're currently doing, how much you're ready to change, all of those types of things. But I think a great start, Alan, is get your hands on Flexible Dieting Book. The link will be in the show notes. Anything else that you would like to share, Alan? Last night at about midnight, I broke out the fat-free Greek yogurt, got the vanilla protein powder, dumped it on top of that, and then dumped a handful of blueberries on top of it and thought to myself, you know, if I bought into the, the time-restricted feeding model, I wouldn't be getting this, this hit of, of highly nutritious stuff right now, including the protein that, that would round out the targets for my personal goals. And it, it just reminded me about how people buy into certain fads and compromise what, what they can achieve. Dude, be, being 50 years old, I do think about how much longer I'm going to be able to hold on to lean tissue. At which point is, is frailty really going to start challenging me? But knowing that I'm maintaining a certain set of um, evidence-based habits, not everybody stays up as late as me mm-hmm. and not everybody has to have this nighttime hit of protein, but it's one of the tactics that would go against this early time restricted feeding model that's being pushed out for longevity that uh, I, I proudly and happily violate. <laughs> um, I also want to also want to mention I just completed a paper on age related anabolic resistance 
And um, I'm going to send you a, a link to that, that you awesome. can provide for your audience. And, and the interesting thing, it's not even an open access paper, but the publisher gave us a link to the full text that we could share Great. with our friends and colleagues. And so um, I'm really stoked about that. It was just published. And um, I really want to encourage you, you probably read it already, your, your audience to read that paper, um, because it's really going to be relevant to uh, older adults who want to maintain um, optimal musculoskeletal and, and otherwise health into their golden, silver and golden years. So yeah, that's yeah. what I wanted to make sure that I wanted to add that. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. I think that for me, it's definitely a shift that I've noticed over the last few years of really starting to think about this idea of longevity and leveraging strength training and, and just, and, and muscle mass throughout the rest of my life. And I think our listeners, whether they're not thinking about it now, they will be, and this will resonate. And so if you are listening and you haven't been thinking about this, I do think it's incredibly relevant uh, for you to start thinking about how you're training now, if you're training now, and how you're going to be able to continue to potentiate that training throughout the rest of your life and finding the ways that work best for you. And that's so much of what I appreciate about this conversation is just that, is the individualized nature of this flexible dieting approach of figuring out the ways that work best for you, creating awareness, creating accountability, and then plugging it in and prioritizing it so that you can make the changes uh, that you're looking for. So Alan, Thank you immensely for your time. Um, thank you so much for everything that you're doing in the industry. I'm, I'm extremely grateful to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you and to be able to share this with our listeners. So we'll definitely have to do it again. I know you're a very busy man, and so I'm going to let you go. But um, thank you again, sir. Be very happy to do it again. And thank you for the great work that you're doing in the space as well, Ben. Appreciate it, brother. Take care. Talk soon. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here are four ways I can help you in your nutrition journey for free. One, grab a free copy of my Fat Loss Fix Guide at fatlossfixguide.com. Two, join my free group at smartnutritionmadesimple.com. Three, subscribe to my YouTube channel at smartnutritionmadesimpletv.com. Four, leave a five-star rating and positive review so that we can gain access to more nutrition experts ready to share their knowledge with you and ultimately help more people make smart nutrition simple. 